0: The first of my posts to the Facebook group about Part 3, Book 7, Chapters 4 through 6 was a focused summary of the chapters. As we recover from the shock that Govan has set Lantinac free and that Simordan has ordered his execution, we watch an electric shock run through the soldiers' camp. At first, they grumble that they're about to see a priest acquit a nobleman. Then, when they learn of the death sentence, they protest. A priest dares to kill a soldier? Like Radoub, they love their leader, their young commander, their hero. And they surround Simorden with dark anger. Though Simorden is impervious to their judgment, we're still allowed a little hope. For in this moment, Simorden is the supreme man. He has full powers. He can grant pardon. He can free Gauvin with a word, and he, in all his formidable, intransigent loyalty to principle, has just one weakness, Gauvin. Our hopes are raised as we see Simordan enter Gauvin's cell, just as Gauvin had done the night before. He gazes upon the sleeping Gauvin like a mother looking at her baby, and tenderly kisses his hand. Gauvin awakens, sees Simordan with his eyes full of those flames which burn tears, and seeks to console Simordan for sending him to his death. He credits Simordan with his very existence, for saving his life and forging his soul. Simordan took the saber-blow at Dole, stood next to him in the breach, delivered him from prejudice, made him a mind and gave him the key of light. He says to the man who would be his executioner, Oh, my master, I thank you. It was you who created me. With his last remaining breaths, Govan then begins a reverie on the revolution. He and Simordan agree that the ferocity of 93 has been necessary, and that, quote, Beneath a scaffolding of barbarism, a temple of civilization is being built. Unquote. But they disagree about the nature of that temple. Simordan wants the republic of the absolute. Govan the republic of the ideal. Simordan wants balance. Govan seeks harmony. Simordan wishes man had been made by Euclid. Govan wishes he had been made by Homer. Rights versus devotion, law versus love, justice versus equity, scales versus the lyre, the theorem versus the eagle. These are the metaphorical expressions of their conflicting visions of the new world. Simordan accuses Govan of dreaming, as Govan lays out his utopian ideal, where all the earth's forces have been harnessed for production. Where equality exists between man and woman, where poverty has been eliminated, and where every individual ascends a social ladder that leads to God. At some point, Govan's reverie is punctuated by the sounds of sentries, planks, and hammer blows—the sounds of Govan's impending death—and though Simordan, listening to them, grows pale, Govan does not hear. As his life draws to a close, he is thinking of the future. Next, we are presented with Hugo's epic juxtaposition of two symbols. 1,500 years of oppression versus one year of savage rebellion. A debt versus the falling dew. Monarchy versus revolution. The Torg versus the guillotine and these two symbols of brutality stare each other down as preparations are made for the execution of a man who happens to be both noble and a revolutionary. And then we have arrived at the novel's final, excruciating scene. At least it was for me. Every detail of this scene wrenches my heart, and though I have read it more than a dozen times, it has never gotten any easier for me. FROM THE SOLDIERS' TEARFUL PLEAS FOR MERCY AND WILLINGNESS TO TAKE Govan's PLACE ON THE SCAFFOLD, TO Govan's SERENE AND CONSOLING WAVE TO SIMORDAN, TO THAT MOST unbearable MOMENT OF ALL, THE FALLING OF THE BLADE AND THE REPORT OF THE PISTOL SHOT, IT IS ONE MONUMENTAL MOMENT AFTER ANOTHER OF MEN'S HEROIC COMMITMENT TO THEIR VALUES, EVEN IN THE FACE OF DEATH. The next of my posts to the Facebook group was my favorites from this section. To choose a favorite line from this chapter feels a bit like choosing a favorite among my own children. I love them all. But I do want to bring special attention to one in particular. Let me bring you back for a moment to an experience in my life for which I had no words. It was the morning of September 11th, 2001. I'm sure I do not need to express to any of you the sheer horror of that day. I lived in Southern California at that time, and I recall the feeling of going outside and being aware that it was a lovely, breezy, sunny day, and conscious of how strange and wrong that seemed. The atmosphere around me jarred so pronouncedly with my inner turmoil. I was conscious of that discomfort but I didn't have the words for it, until years later when I was reminded of this. Nature is merciless. She never consents to withdraw her flowers, her music, her fragrances, and her sunbeams before human abomination. She overwhelms man with the contrast between divine beauty and social ugliness. She spares him neither a butterfly's wing nor the song of a bird. In the midst of murder, vengeance, and barbarity, he must undergo the gaze of sacred things. He cannot escape the immense reproach of universal gentleness and the implacable serenity of the sky. In her Guide to Enjoying Poetry, Elizabeth Drew says, Poets find the right words in the right order for what we already dimly and dumbly feel and they also fertilize in our consciousness responses which were lying inert and cloddish." Hugo has the power not just to give words to what we feel, but to expand our very capacity to feel. Here are a few other favorites. He was opposed by four thousand men. That would seem to be a great force, but it was not, for those four thousand men were a crowd. And Simordan was a will. Unquote. Quote, Simordan experienced that jolt which is sometimes given to us by the sudden invasion of a wave of thoughts. Sometimes this wave is so high and so stormy that it seems that it will extinguish the soul. Go, Quote, come back to Earth. We want to realize the possible begin by not making it impossible. Quote, Furthermore, what does the storm matter to me if I have a compass? And what do events matter to me if I have my conscience? Quote, Society is nature made sublime. I want everything that's lacking in beehives and ant hills, monuments, art, poetry, heroes, geniuses." Quote, "No, no more yokes. Man is made not to drag chains, but to spread his wings." "And even a lion would have been deeply moved or frightened to hear them, for the tears of soldiers are terrible." Unquote. The last of my posts to the Facebook group was an article I wrote a few years ago about the experience of teaching 93 in the classroom. This seemed like a good time to share it with you. It's called, The Key of Light. My favorite quote of the week, perhaps even of the year, came from an 8th grade student. She said, I feel like a terrible person. That demands explanation. We had just completed Victor Hugo's novel, 93, which happens to be the novel from which the title of my blog, Pygmalion of the Soul, was derived. One of its primary characters, Simordan, is an ardent revolutionary. Charged early in his life with the role of tutoring Gauvin, a young aristocrat, he had imbued him with his radical ideas and animated him with his fanatical passion. In the process, he had come to regard Gauvin as more than a son, and Gauvin to regard him as more than a father. Quote, this deep spiritual paternity bound Simordan to his pupil. A mind can have a child. Unquote. And in another timelessly eloquent metaphor for education, the one that inspired my blog's title, Hugo says, quote, It is a beautiful thing to mold a statue and give it life. It is still more beautiful to shape an intelligence and give it truth. Simordan was a Pygmalion of the soul. The relationship between Gauvin and Simordan is one of the cornerstones of this riveting, heart-wrenching, and awe-inspiring novel. The story takes place at the height of the Reign of Terror, when the woods of Vendée have become a pivotal and menacing battleground. The leader of the royal army in Vendée is the Marquis de Lantenac, a notoriously ruthless general who sees justice in any action that furthers his cause. He will shoot women, which he does when the innocent peasant mother, Michelle Flechard is given refuge by his enemies. He will make hostages of children— which he does, when he must decide what to do with the executed young mother's three helpless orphans. He will kill his own family, which he vows to do, since his fiercest rival in Vendée is none other than his own nephew and Simordan's pupil, now a revolutionary general, Gauvin. Gauvin, himself a brilliant and capable military leader, is also known, however, as more idealistic and merciful in the implementation of his ambitions. Quote, "...above the revolutionary absolute there is the human absolute." Unquote. The leaders of the Reign of Terror see this as a weakness, and they decide to appoint a man with the severity and mercilessness of Lantanac to supervise Gauvin. And, should this weakness betray their cause, to see to his execution. They appoint none other than Govan's spiritual father, Simordan. Consistent with Hugo's unfailingly grand view of life and of man, every one of these characters is heroic in the defense of his values, and the clash or confluence of their goals makes for a breathtakingly dramatic climax. At the Torg Castle, Lantanac's childhood home, and the very site of Simordan's tutelage of the young Gauvin, we find, Lantanac and eighteen royalists besieged and outnumbered, yet determined to fight to the death. Gauvin and a large revolutionary army surrounding them, competing for the honor of being in the vanguard of the attack. The three blissful, frolicking children, unaware that they are being held under the threat of execution should Govan's army begin the assault. Simordan, watching over Govan's shoulder, tortured by the conflict between his revolutionary and fatherly devotions. And the mother, who, as it turns out, has survived gunshot, starvation, and a grueling, solitary, barefoot journey through the woods— finally finding her children again in the center of this inferno. The great author Ayn Rand once said that reading Hugo gave her, quote, the feeling of entering a cathedral, unquote. In a Hugo novel, man is heroic, life matters, and values are worth dying for. Hence my students' reaction to 93. I feel like a terrible person. Now, clearly, I do not want her response to be fundamentally discouraging or self-critical. But it wasn't. She said it with a smile. Though she phrased her feeling in the negative, it was tongue-in-cheek. I believe she meant to express the feeling's positive corollaries. This novel makes me feel that greatness is possible. This novel makes me want to be great. From their education, I want my students to gain knowledge, to gain practical skills, and to gain a Hugo-esque perspective on what is possible in life. As usual, Hugo himself put it best, in a phrase I only really noticed during this, probably my tenth reading of 93. In a tribute to his teacher, that it is my life's ambition to earn being said of me, Govan says, quote, You made me fit for earthly life as a man and for heavenly life as a soul. You gave me the key of truth to go into human reality and the key of light to go beyond. Hugo's novels help to provide just such a key. I want to thank you for joining me on this journey through 93. It's been such a pleasure to reach out beyond my little classroom of 15 and share with all of you my love of Hugo and Hugo's love for the human potential. I hope this will be just the start of our journeys together and that you'll join me for many more novels, plays, and poems to come.